Welcome to A Thing of Beauty. I'm your host, Claire Repschult, a senior in the College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University studying English and History. This podcast is part of Themester, a themed semester brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences. This fall, we are exploring beauty as a core component of human experience. In each episode, we'll invite faculty to share an object of beauty with us. So let's meet our guest. Today I'd like to welcome Jason Jackson. He's a professor of folklore and the director of the Mathers Museum of World Cultures. Jason, thank Thank, you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I hear that you've chosen an object for us that's special to you because of many aspects of your career. And I was wondering if you could describe that object for us to start us off. I would love to. It's a basket. Uh, some people say I'm obsessed with baskets, but I think they have, a, they have a lot to teach us. This particular basket that I've chosen was made by a woman named Rowena Bradley, and she was a Cherokee um, basket maker from a place called Cherokee, North Carolina, which is in the western part of North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and this basket is in the collection of the Mathers Museum of World Cultures, where I work. It is square um, at the base. Um, it's uh, taller than it is wide. Um, it has a lid on top so that in a way it's two baskets in one because the lid um, is a basket itself that's in essence turned upside down and placed on top. Um, It's covered um, in a kind of design of rows of diamonds um, and it's got three different um, colors to it. There's a there's a tan um, which is the natural color of the the river cane of which it's made. There's and then there's two different colors that were achieved with natural dyes. Um, one of them is kind of orange, and then there's a sort of dark brown color. So it has uh, a combination of stripes and diamonds, and then in these in the different elements are in these three different colors. Um, the it's not totally obvious if you look at it, but if you were to take it apart, you could learn the, that it's um, what's called a double woven basket. And what that means is that it's in essence two baskets woven together. And when a basket's made out of river cane or bamboo, what that means is that there's a shiny outer surface and a rougher um, surface which comes from the inside of the plant. Um, but in a river cane basket like the one that Rowena Bradley made, the shiny, smooth, glossy, beautiful exterior is present um, both on the inside and the outside of the basket. Um, This was um, seen as a kind of beautiful characteristic, but it's also very practical because that shiny, smooth, glossy exterior is very um, water resistant, very durable, very stain resistant, so it's very um, sensible. But from a technical point of view, this is the most difficult kind of basket to produce because you, in essence, weave a basket and then you weave another basket inside of that basket to produce the double-sided effect. And can people go see that basket on display, or is it a special collection item? How do we find it? Folks will definitely have a chance to look at it, and it'll be in our teaching gallery this fall. Great. We're looking forward to seeing it then. So what are some aspects of the object that made you think it was particularly beautiful? Like, why did you choose it for this conversation today? You'll see as we talk about beauty that um, a big part of my understanding of beauty has to do with context. Um, I come from a scholarly tradition which is very interested in beauty, but the way in which we come at beauty has a lot to do with uh, the context that surrounds the objects that we might engage with and might consider to be beautiful. Right. So when you're looking at the surface of the object and thinking of it as beautiful, what definition are you bringing to bear? So what are you thinking of as beauty that you're looking at the object and saying, oh yes, this is a beautiful thing? 
in many societies, and this isn't a universal definition of beauty, but in many of the societies that I've come to know, um, things are beautiful if they have the characteristic of being well-made. So we can imagine an easel painting or a basket or a, an automobile that's well-designed as having this quality of beauty as an outgrowth in part of the fact that it was made particularly well by someone who is um, a master of the field or genre in which they work. So Rowena Bradley's basket has some of those characteristics. She was recognized as the, the most talented and gifted uh, weaver of these river cane baskets in her generation. And she also um, was a key person in carrying that tradition forward out of the past and handing it on to others so that for many people, she's a kind of inspiration and a teacher. Um, and we can see some of the the reasons for that in the basket itself, and that it's, as an example of its type, extremely well made. And visually, the contrast between the dyed um, and the natural cane that the basket is composed of, um, it's very well executed. And it has, a, from a Cherokee cultural point of view, uh, a compelling design that's well done. So do you see the artist in that? Is her identity part of your kind of love for the basket? Or is it really the object that you're focusing on? I think that if I were just encountering the object, many of the visitors to our museum, their first encounter with a basket like this will be as an object that they don't know very much about. I think many of them, seeing it just as a thing in the world, would find it interesting and compelling. Um, it would cause people to say things like, I'd like to know more about that. But also I think that um, the graphic design, so to speak, of it mm -hmm. is very compelling. Um, in terms of her work, um, it's a signature item for her in the sense that um, this basket is um, perhaps of a type that is the most sort of challenging and complicated to make well. Mm -hmm. And so other museums, for instance, have baskets by her that are similar to one that we have. Um, uh, and they they selected this one, and she produced baskets like this because they kind of expressed her her art and her craft at its most refined. So was this a later career piece for her? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, the kind of basket that this example is an instance of is a kind of basket that goes back in this region, in the southeastern United States, a long, long, long before Europeans and others arrived here. And so that if you were to ask a Cherokee person about the, the oldest and most um, culturally important kind of basketry that they make, this would be the, the kind of basket they would point to. What's interesting is that the Cherokee have adopted many other styles of basketry, some of which um, are relatively modern. For instance, the Cherokee make beautiful baskets out of honeysuckle, which is an introduced species that came from Japan. It's kind of a obnoxious weed, <laughs> at least in Cherokee country, but they make beautiful baskets. The tradition of that kind of basketry, though, is relatively recent, whereas the basket that I've pointed us to is um, you know, the oldest kind okay. of basketry that we know. So share with me, for people who don't know a lot about baskets, who might encounter them yeah. most frequently at garage sales oh. or Goodwill shelves, sure, sure. share with me kind of an, an ode to the basket oh. or something, kind of your introductory understanding of why we should appreciate baskets and see like how we can understand the nuances of a good basket. There's a basket maker here in Indiana named Vicki Graber. Uh, she was just featured recently on a WTIU uh, uh, television program. And I um, think she was in the last semester. She too. was. She was an artist in residence for us last year during uh, the semester. She, she says about baskets that when you see a basket, 
Um, you're seeing something that a human being made with their own skills and hands, that there's not a machine to make baskets. Now, there's certainly machines that make fake baskets, you know, <laughs> plastic laundry baskets or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But even the inexpensive basket that you're finding at um, Goodwill or in Pier One, mm -hmm. somewhere in the world, there's a person who's put their energies and labor into making that thing. Really? Um, and so that... Uh, Basketry is one of the few kinds of crafts where when you encounter it, you're encountering somebody who's turning their own knowledge and the work of their hands into a thing in the world. Now, some of those things are relatively um, ephemeral, right? Um, I've been traveling to China recently, and if you walk around in Chinese villages in the southwest of China, you'll see baskets, broken baskets lying everywhere. out. They're just going back to the earth. Um, they're... Um, Nobody thinks about baskets in those sorts of settings as, you know, extraordinary high art. They're, they're tools that people use to, to make their way in the world. Um, when I stop and look at them, though, I see um, skill and talent. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in all kinds of beautiful, beautiful things, um, but I'm drawn personally to things that are both practical and beautiful. And for me, a basket is a really good example of that. Um, you know, we can encounter poorly made baskets. If you or I were to make one at a summer camp, <laughs> you know, the results probably wouldn't be that great. But um, in its highest forms, this is like other crafts and arts, something that takes a lifetime of work to master. And not everyone succeeds. There are masters in the world, and Rowena Bradley was one of them. Mm -hmm. So I know you've spent time working with Native American populations to understand material culture and their history. And I don't think the Cherokee is your specialty, so uh, tell me about how you came to be interested in this basket as compared to the different art forms huh. by the populations you study. What's interesting about the case of Cherokee baskets um, are that the kinds of baskets that Rowena Bradley made and the other Ch Cherokee basket makers make today, one of the reasons why there are people making those today is that there's an outside market for them. Mm. Um, the Cherokee people live near... Um, near the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Oh, and I see. what that means is that many outsiders come to their community and that's given them a market in which they can sell their art. Um, and, you know, the more beautiful those works, the more compelling they're going to be to outsiders. Mm -hmm. So beauty and commerce meet, for instance, in a situation like that. Um, so that the, some of the groups that I spend time getting to know, they live in out-of-the-way places where, frankly, outsiders just never come. Mm -hmm. And in those sorts of places, the reason why basketry would continue would be if it was fulfilling a practical need. Well, um, you may have baskets in your life, I may have baskets in my life, but the range of practical needs that baskets these days serve has reduced greatly, right? Mm -hmm. We have plastic buckets, we have backpacks made out of nylon or what have you. Um, we carry our laundry around in things we call baskets, but those are usually made out of plastic or something. So that in many Native American communities in the South, um, where there's a very deep and old tradition of making baskets, um, baskets nonetheless aren't made very much anymore. Where the Cherokee today still make baskets, they mainly make beautiful, beautiful baskets for outsiders. But, but uh, Rowena Bradley's uh, parents and uh, grandparents and the, her ancestors further back, they made baskets to use in everyday life. And um, this brings us back to the interests of my field, which has to do with, on the one hand, the aesthetics, you know, things that are beautiful in the world. But the kinds of things which uh, my colleagues and I are most interested in are beautiful things that are woven into everyday life. Um, it's not that we don't love our museums or operas, um, but the, the kinds of things that are beautiful in your house or mine are of a kind of special interest uh, to my colleagues and I.
if it is something that you see in daily life, it is, and you're talking about our plastic laundry baskets, yeah, yeah. I wonder about your own use of baskets. So mm. you, you've chosen it as, in this case, a museum piece. Sure. But what other ways are you seeing baskets? And do you always have the same reaction when they're not in China or when they're not oh, no. in a museum? <laughs> in a way, you're asking me about anonymous baskets, right? What, what, how do I experience Pier 1 as an example? Is a technical term, well, anonymous baskets. <laughs> well, this is one of the reasons why Rowena Bradley's basket is important to our museum. I can go to Pier 1 and see a basket that I think, oh, that looks really neat. Or, or I might look at it and understand how it's made and appreciate the work of the anonymous maker of it. So I don't want to, just because I don't know the name of a person who made something doesn't mean that it's not admirable or interesting. Um, but <clears throat> the more we know about the things we encounter in the world, I think the richer our understanding of them would be. And this is true in art history too, right? That we might find a work by an impressionist painter engaging, but then when we learn about the life of the artist, our sort of appreciation of it might grow richer. And I think that's true for all the kinds of things we encounter in the world. So then is it, does it then begin with you just having a gut reaction to something and then the, the, um, the research comes later? Or for you, does it begin with the research? Like where does the beauty fall in your process? This is going to be one of the big questions, I think, for the whole of the semester. Um, different um, frames of mind, different traditions approach that very differently. I think that as a human being, I probably do have gut reactions devoid of context. But <clears throat> I belong to a scholarly tradition which would want to interrogate that response. And then one, and try to figure out, well, if I think I'm reacting to something in the abstract, in a kind of direct encounter sort of way, with a sort of sense of surprise and wonder, like um, I, I would want to enjoy that experience, but then I'd want to step back and try to make sense of it. What kinds of covert understandings or perceptions or knowledge am I bringing into that encounter that caused me to react the way that I did? Um, so that one kind of context is the, the overt sort of discoverable context, but another one is the sort of biases and presuppositions and, and um, other kinds of understandings or misunderstandings that we bring with us. Native American people know this very, very well because they live in a set of circumstances in which um, non-Native perceptions of Native culture, um, which are oftentimes based on stereotypes or misunderstandings, nonetheless really condition their interactions with, um, with the wider world. Um, and, but they're not alone in that. Um, I think there's all kinds of well, we just live in a world where people are bringing stereotypes and misunderstandings into their encounters with the world. So yeah. do you think, it sounds like you're drawing on your training as a scholar and your research in a particular Native American context to think about beauty. So do you um, think that there was a time when your understanding of beauty changed? Yeah, this is one of those um, kinds of dynamics in which you have to be careful before you take a intro class in folklore <laughs> or anthropology. I mean, I would urge everyone to do that because I think that life on the other side of that introductory course is worth living, but it is also the case that it does change how things work for you, right? I mean, if you worked in the film industry, you wouldn't watch movies in the same way that you do as a sort of everyday film goer. Um, if you've worked for three years in the back of a of a fancy restaurant, your understanding of what restaurants are all about would be different. So this is kind of the occupational hazard. In my case, the sort of um, context-first obsession that I and some of my colleagues have is, is a sort of outgrowth of the disciplinary work that we do. 
I'm interested particularly in understanding questions like beauty in a cross-cultural way. Actually, folklore in a way is um, is a discipline that's particularly oriented towards beauty, particularly in, in the way that the field has developed in the United States. It is about beauty. Its approach to beauty in a way is compensatory to the way that some other fields like philosophy and art history approach beauty. So describe uh, what you mean by compensatory. Um, one way to think about this would be to say, to ask questions of of all of the scholarly fields, what is their object of study and how do they generally approach that object? Um, if beauty, for instance, was a shared interest for the fields, let's say, philosophy, art history, and folklore studies, um, they each approach beauty in a different way, and there are other fields with interest in beauty as well. That's why Themester this year is so rich, right? That all so many disciplines can engage. But in the case of folklore studies, it's compensatory in a couple of ways. One is that the field tends to look at the kinds of works and the kinds of expressions which might or might not be characterizable as beautiful or in which beauty might be at issue. We tend to look at those phenomenon that are outside of the, they're sort of off of the primary focus list for, uh, for fields like art history or philosophy to use my two neighboring examples. Um, uh, Everyday aesthetics, for instance, have long been of concern to the field of folklore studies. Um, uh, the, the arts of people of modest means, which means the, the arts of the vast majority of humanity, the kinds of artistic and expressive activities which get woven into everybody's everyday life, right? Um, if you were to ask a, a sophomore walking across campus, are you an artist, they probably they might be an artist, but if they're not, in some formal sense, they might sort of say, well, no, why do you ask? But if you ask um, someone about, for instance, uh, for a special occasion, should you set the table, the dinner table in a certain kind of way? Or did you give thought to the clothes that you chose for the birthday party you went to last weekend? Everybody that I've ever met in the world, is, their daily lives are filled with aesthetic questions. But those are not always so overtly marked in the way that the, say, the, the music industry or the world of the art museum marks off some kinds of expressive activity as special um, and worthy of a like whole disciplines of attention. So that folklore is compensatory in part as a field of study because it looks at the artistic aspects of the things that other fields are kind of ten tend to neglect, and that's its special purpose in the world. But so if you were to be in a Folklore 100 class and you came to your professor's office hours asking them about folklore and beauty, what mm. might they say? Would that would that jar them or would I that... Know. Okay. They would, they would love it. Um, so the first thing to, that the Folklore 101 instructor <laughs> is going to say is that... Uh, for the field in which she or he works, um, a big consideration are local conceptions of beauty, which are discoverable in particular cultural contexts. Now, that's not the only thing that a folklorist would do, but it's in some ways the, a primary kind of mission, which is to understand the different ways of living in the world, including the different ways of living beautifully that exist in the world. Um, if you engage in that kind of work, over time, you, you learn the fact that there are some similarities and differences that would be characteristic of different societies. That leads to um, two additional kinds of inquiry. One would be um, to try to make sense of the history that accounts for those differences. What has happened in the past that shapes the way in which people approach beauty in the present? And there's a second kind of 
additional move, and that's a kind of comparative one. What would we learn if we compared the different ways in which different peoples at different times in the world have approached beauty? It could be that we start to learn that there are some overarching patterns that, that different groups of people share. They might share them for historical reasons because their traditions of beauty come from the same source. It might be religious, for instance, that uh, having a Buddhist tradition has shaped the beauty concepts of two or three or four or however many different Buddhist societies. It may be, on the other hand, that there are some kinds of concerns which are just reoccurring in the human condition. Uh, some early scholarship in folklore, for instance, pointed out that um, people uh, in music and in the graphic arts um, in many societies have an appreciation for rhythm. So mm -hmm. if you look at Rowena Bradley's basket, for instance, one way that you could characterize it is it has a series of reoccurring motifs that are spaced apart from one another in a way that in many societies people would find kind of satisfying. Um, this is like rhythm in music, but it's something like rhythm in the visual arts as well. So it could be that tentatively, if we compare enough conceptions of beauty in enough different societies, that we might start to discover some reoccurring patterns. But those kinds of discoveries are sort of secondary to the one which basically involves going out in the world and not presuming we know what's beautiful, but instead asking other people what they think is beautiful. A, a basket seems simple, but when I look at a basket, those are the kinds of complicated contexts which I see present or represented in it. So that um, Rowena Bradley's basket tells me about changing environmental conditions. Um, river cane was once abundant, now it's an endangered plant species. It tells me about changing ways of life in terms of things like farming. Um, uh, her basket was the kind of basket that would be used to store corn seed, for instance. Um, it tells me about how people live their lives and the ways in which their lives are changing. It tells me, for instance, about the ways in which the Cherokee people have become bound together with non-Cherokee people who are the main market for their arts today. Uh, it's like a bus station in which many, many different pathways are converging. And so even though if we look at it on the table, it seems like a relatively contained and simple thing. For me, the beauty of it stems from the fact that so many different aspects of life are present in it woven together like the fibers yes the right that's a good metaphor so thank you so much for sharing your understanding of beauty with us today and remind sure. us where we can find the basket well um uh, it will be back on display at the Mathers Museum of World Cultures and the Mathers is on campus um, you can find it at the corner of 9th in Indiana just up the street from Yogi's 